Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What's up, legends? Welcome back to another episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Uh, today, I, I am joined by an incredibly special guest. Uh, I've been super excited for this conversation today. I'm joined by running physio, uh, extremely well um, respected within the industry and, and works with some of the top athletes um, in, in the country and has a lot of experience himself. And I think I was reading at some point, he's done over 30,000 uh, consults, which I'm sure has probably updated since, uh, since, since the last time you updated that one. But guys, I'm joined today by Brad Beer. Uh, Brad, welcome to the show, man. Danny, thanks for the invitation. Uh, excited to be here. Mate, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I was quickly just mentioning before we hit record that I think the audience will just take away so much value from our chat. And I often say um, a lot of the time, the guests that I get on the show, it's almost for selfish reasons, to be honest. I, I pick people who I think I would love to learn from. Uh, it's just a good excuse that I've got a podcast as well. So uh, I'm looking looking forward to having a chat today, mate. So let's um, let's dive in. So been in the industry for a long time. Um, I'm sure you've seen absolutely everything that you could see as a physio and particularly working with athletes and, and um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of athletes that have either recurring um, injuries in the lower body or, or any form of injuries, but also um, particularly obviously with triathletes as well. Um, I think running, everybody listening at some point in time has probably uh, tried their hand at running, whether it's uh, competitively or just to, to work on their health and fitness. Some probably love it a lot more than others and, and some probably stay as far away from it as possible. But how, uh, how did you kind of get started? Um, not so much in the industry as a physio, but what really drew you to, to going so niche and specific with, with working with people that are runners or triathletes in the first place? Yeah, Denny, it's a good question. Uh, and a fairly obvious sort of, uh, I guess, response, like so many people, we, you know, follow our interests. And uh, my background has always been in triathlon since I was a, a kid, as a 10-year-old, fell in love with the sport of triathlon on TV. Uh, had some degree of ability as a junior triathlete, and I only had two career pathways. One was physiotherapy, or the second was triathlon. And my triathlon life came to a crashing end as a 19-year-old with fairly decent set of injuries from a bike crash and uh, picked up university at the end of school. And, and here I am. So it's funny though, when I started in the industry, I had had a lot of back pain at uni and I was adamant that the only thing I ever wanted to treat Danny was going to be back pain. But right. um, my love, my love for running, I called the clinic that we I sit in today, my back's physio when I first started it in 2006. Um, but uh, knowing people, from that triathlon endurance world, I'd end up seeing them anyway. And, you know, over the years we've evolved to now be Pogo Physio and yeah, have the pleasure of working with some, um, some associations, Triathlon Australia, Athletics New Zealand, um, um, and different, uh, organizations. So yeah, it's what I know and love. So it's probably the simple answer. Yeah, hundred percent. And I guess the, and just on that as well, Pogo is obviously going extremely well. How, how many years ago did you say that you, that you kind of renamed it or started Pogo? Yeah, the clinic started, I was five months post-graduation from physio school and I was working in what I thought was my dream job, but mm. it wasn't very dreamish uh, and I didn't know what else to do with myself uh, on realizing that it sort of worked for double degree, six years to uh, end up in a job that really didn't 
have a lot of uh, what I was looking for in terms of vision for the future and career progression. So I started my own clinic and it's been since 2006. We've had a few names over the time. We had my back's physio for the first three years, had a four years, had a five-year journey in the middle in a national group, which mm-hmm. um, I didn't particularly enjoy for a variety of reasons. And then we rebirthed the clinic as Pogo Physio. It'd be probably seven, eight years now. Unreal. And I mean, obviously a published author, um, you know, you can run pain-free um, the book that, that you've written. What The inspiration behind that, I'm assuming, is just the, the countless, um, uh, I guess, countless injuries and stuff that you would continually see through through clients and whatnot and then maybe just issues that people brought up. Is that Was that the case? And I guess how... How's the response been since you've released that? Obviously, an extremely powerful um, book and something that I think so many people that enjoy running um, would gravitate gravitate to instantly, especially when so many people probably run with pain. Um, so how has the response been since you've released that? Um, and I guess, has it had the, the effect that you had hoped it would when putting it together? Yeah, Danny, it was released uh, 2015, I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, the years tick by. And then re-released with an expanded edition uh, in 2018. Uh, And um, I'm due for it to put out another book around Masters Running. And the more I say this publicly, the more I'll be held accountable. So chase me up on this one. (laughs) But um, but mate, You Can Run Pain-Free was really just an expression of some clinical uh, observations I'd made over the years as a physiotherapist to that point. And that is, there seems to be an inevitability in belief amongst runners that they'll get injured at some point and statistics certainly do show us that that is the case um, with really 75% of runners of any level incurring one injury in a 12 month period. But the book, I guess it's a catchy title, but it really just works through an outline sort of, we could call it five sort of steps or five keys for th- people to think about to, you can't stop injuries, but hopefully create an environment where injury risk is minimized or reduced but yeah it's it's been well received it's you know around the world it's a, it's a bestseller which you never ever dream of when you write a book you just yeah. put it out there hoping hoping that two people get something out of it so um yeah it's been a bit of a journey on that topic what what are some of the most common injuries that you have people coming to see you about um from running yeah denny uh I think many people will relate to these, but shin splints or medial tibial stress syndrome, yep. tibial bone stress, uh, that's very common. Achilles tendon issues, uh, obviously many runners will, will deal with that one. Uh, and then you've got um, things like uh, kneecap pains, very common, patellofemoral pain, yep. uh, IT band pain, uh, calf strains. They're kind of your big cluster of commonly experienced running related injuries. I guess without going into too much detail, because we'll, we'll obviously have the link to the to the book in the show notes for anyone who is interested um, to, to grab a copy yourself and have a proper read through it. But are you able to run us through, I guess, the you know the five core kind of fundamentals of, of how to, to be able to run pain-free? Um, obviously, again, not going into too much detail, but just to give us a bit of an overview. Uh, step one, uh, Denny, we talk about discovering your running body, which is really just understanding how you put together uh there's a little saying that there's three types of people on the planet flippies floppies and stiffies right <laughs> uh, and it's, it's it's really got to do with your genetic mobility so 
what genes did you get from mum and dad around how much you, your joints do or don't move? Um, and once you know that, then it can, in general terms, direct you to where you might need to invest some energy. Is it more mobility stuff or is it more strength and conditioning stuff? So that's what we call step one. Yep. Step two, we, we explore running with uh, what we call great technique and what matters with biomechanics, what doesn't. Uh, seems to be like many people have an opinion about how people should run. But if we look at the science, um, there's really only two things that matter, overstriding and hip dip, which happy to explore more if you need to. 100%. Uh, step three was navigating the footwear maze. How do you make sense as a consumer of all the noise around running shoe selections? Mm. It's crowded, I it's I feel busy. So that's a big one. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, the fourth step we spoke about was the importance of hip control to minimize hip dip. And uh, the fifth was the power of rest, recognizing that, the only training we benefit from, whether it's running training or strength and conditioning or whatever is the training that we're adapting and recovering from. So that were the five steps, Danny. On, on the step number two there, I know we said we won't go into too much detail about it. I don't want to give away all your secrets, but <laughs> when, when you, when you touch on, um, was it, was it the stride length? Was it, was it overstriding and then the hip dip? Are you able to go into, um, just a little bit of detail around exactly what that means, I guess, for, for the average listener at the moment that, um, that maybe just going for a run here and there and enjoys their running that may not actually understand biomechanically what, what you mean there. Are you able to kind of dive into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Danny, it's, this came from a, uh, a meta analysis in the science that, uh, a physio colleague of mine in the UK, Chris Bremer, uh, uh, did for his PhD. And um, it was looking at beginner and elite runners and trying to identify if there's any movement patterns that are correlated with injuries. Yep. Uh, and it was a big job for Chris, but the findings were that there were only two biomechanical features of running that were correlated with running related injuries we've mentioned a few of them already it band pain yep. kneecap pain achilles tendinopathy uh and those two were as we've mentioned uh overstriding and this hip dip now overstriding very simply is taking two biggest steps two biggest steps and there's a very simple way to assess for this and that's just to have a look at someone running on a treadmill um and have a look at where their foot have a look, sorry, where their shin is relative to their uh, knee at foot strike. So if their shin is out in front, mm -hmm. then they're overstriding. If their shin's vertical, we want a vertical tibia at foot impact. Then they're in the, I guess, the, the appropriate place. Um, and so you often see with beginner runners that intuitively they, and I've been there as a junior athlete, we tend to think that if we stride out, we're going to be better, faster, more efficient runners, but it's actually the opposite. We want quick foot contact on and off the ground. And that's achieved by having a, you know, a cadence. So a quick cadence. So that's overstriding. Danny? And just to, just to um, clarify, when you say cadence, um, that, that refers to the amount of steps. Is that, is that correct? As in the amount of strides that you're, you're actually doing? Yeah, correct. That's, you know, if we think of spin classes, RPMs, you know, yep. revs per minute, Yep. rotation sorry per minute uh it's the same how many steps per minute that's the language we use in running biomechanics okay. spms and when i wrote this book uh years ago now but the thinking was at the time that if people can get somewhere near 180 steps per minute or 90 steps single leg per minute 
that they'll be in a sort of a, a range that's consistent with optimal running. Uh, the science over the time changes and we know that 180 doesn't suit everyone. So people should not hear this and think they have to or read the book and think they have to hit 180. Yep. What we do know is if someone is overstriding, so remember that's the, the shin is not vertical at the point of impact, mm-hmm. then if they can increase their cadence by even just a couple of steps per minute, they'll reduce peak loading on the skeletal structures, soft tissue structures, and therefore reduce some injury risk, but also as a bonus, probably improve their performance as well. And and in terms of the, I guess the overstriding, so you're going for, say someone is heel striking. um, So they're, they're taking too long of strides. What, what I guess are the common um, occurrences of that? I'm assuming things like uh, shin splints, the tightness of the, um, of the, uh, the anterior tibialis, like stuff like that. Is that, is that the type of um, injuries or I guess um, niggles that people are going to see? Like for someone listening at the moment that does have, say, shin splints or struggles with that shin pain or, or whatnot, is that probably like most likely because of an overstride issue? It's a brilliant question. Uh, the answer is, surprisingly perhaps no it's not like biomechanics uh how people run is something that if someone's injured should always be assessed for in a good thorough rehabilitation process yep Uh, but it's in and of itself it's never the key driver of any running related injury whether that's soft tissues like achilles tendon issues or Mm -hmm. calf strains or whether that's bony issues like shin pain like we've mentioned yep but it, it is a is it a feature of uh of some of these injuries, not in everyone, but in, you know, in, in many people. So, so uh, the key cause for running related injuries is, is typically when training workloads exceed tissue capacities, whether that's the bone capacity or okay. the, the tendon capacity or the muscle capacity. Right. So our running biomechanics can be one of these factors that influences uh, the workload and also in some ways influences the tissue characteristics. So hope that kind of makes sense. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And then in terms of the hip dip, are you able to go and stay? Because I'm I'm unaware of kind of what what that means as well. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. Just think of it simply, Danny. Uh, as you you'll know it when I explain it. If you look at someone from behind when they're running uh, mm-hmm. on a treadmill or at the end of a race, we typically assess this with people's shirts off. So women in crop tops, blokes with their shirts off and shorts. And you'll often see when they land on one leg, mm-hmm. the hip dip off to the side. So you land on your left and your right hip collapses. Right. Okay. Uh, you land on your right and the left hip. So you see this almost like a model walking mm-hmm. on a catwalk. Yep. Um, and this is what we refer to quite simply as hip dip or Trendelenburg sign. As people get fatigued, the hips often start to drop more. And that right. can set us up for a bunch of running related injuries, particularly running an uh, IT band pain or itb syndrome as it's in the old days referred to that's that sharp stabbing pain on the outside of the knee outside of the knee in the quad yeah is that typically from or is there something that people could think about um and i'm sure there's many pieces to the puzzle here but that hip dip is that something that people are maybe just uh subconsciously unaware of like something that they are or aren't doing while they're running that could prevent that uh, do you mean if, 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 as they're running, can they think about something that changes it? Yeah. That can avoid that, that overhip there. It's a brilliant question. Now we do know that we often see this, uh, hip dip in the overstriding runners. So it mm-hmm. comes back to cadence once again. Yep. Keeping okay. that shin vertical. 
Um, but there's not really a, an, a cue that we can tell ourselves. So don't hip dip, Danny. If yeah, we yeah. tell ourselves that, it doesn't tend to cut through. Um, what we need to remedy the hip dip or the pelvic collapse or that exaggerated, you know, catwalk, model catwalker type movement is, uh, is really good strength in the hip abductors. So they're the muscles on the side of the hip, which of course you're familiar with, your glute yep. medius, your glute minimus. So for example, if someone's in a strength and conditioning setting and most runners ideally would have access to, to stuff, they're doing cable abductions for their hips with a cable around their ankle and okay. working as hard as they can to hit those hip abductors. So it's strength and conditioning. And that's a solution for mm. that typically. Great news. Great news for, for my potential clientele. <laughs> um, I think um, a question I was going to ask you, this is what I've been curious about. I feel like I, I do know the answer, but um, I'd love to hear your take on it. So, when we talk about say strength and conditioning, um, staying on that topic and being in the gym, a lot of the the foundation or um, a lot of the the first step starts from the ground up, right? So it's like laying the foundation from the ground up. We think about setting up for a squat or a deadlift, and and we start off with the foot position or or how we're set up from the ground up. When it comes to running, where does where does I guess someone's running techniques start from? Is it is it from the ground up? Is it from um, the top down? Like where do you usually see the issues um, in that regard? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The, our running biomechanics are central nervous system derived. So it's a okay. neural output. Um, and so there's this concept of um, almost like the path of least resistance. Our bodies will traditionally and typically move however it's most efficiently going to get down the road um so so cueing a runner to think about how they run with overstriding corrections trying to increase their steps per minute or uh anything else sometimes people cross over the midline and we see that happening so mm -hmm. it's like they're running on a tightrope we know we call this gate retraining and we know clinically and scientifically that this doesn't stick forever. Yeah. Uh, so if you retrain someone's gait, uh, integrating that into a neural response from the central nervous system, uh, it doesn't always stick for people. So they may need to stay at it whilst ever they're recovering from injury. And we mm -hmm. do know that many people revert to their CNS derived modus operandi of running. Um, yep. So if someone's injured, we might be talking about, right, Denny, make sure you, your step counts up. But if you follow you for three years later and you're not injured anymore, you often find people revert to how they're just naturally finding they want to move. So I don't know if that yeah. helps or not. Yeah, no, it does a hundred percent. And I mean, obviously you, you deal with a lot of clientele who are probably coming to you with some form of injury or niggle or some issue that, that they're trying to address. But for someone that's listening at the moment that doesn't have an injury or any niggle at the moment, but maybe consciously aware of the fact that their running is quite inefficient or maybe they're hearing some of these things and, and it doesn't resonate with how they run. How would you suggest they approach that? Like I know for a lot of people, it's probably more so an ego thing where it's, it's pretty difficult to go from maybe doing your, your hard 10K runs or 5K sessions each week where you try and push yourself and you've been doing it for you know as long as you can remember to then strip it all the way back to really start to work on these fundamentals to retrain yourself. Like you said, central nervous system is something that's quite difficult to, to change once you've been doing some motor, motor pattern for so long. So 
is there is there an approach or um, or a step by step process that you like to um, give your clients um, to start to retrain that and start to build on work on these cadences and and the things like the um, the overstriding and stuff like that? Yeah, it's uh, it's often uh, very. It has to be practical. It has to be something that doesn't require too much time or extra effort from people. So to to work on uh, overstriding. Danny, uh, people can use metronomes on their, um, you know, on their phones if they're running or whatever they might be listening to. It's obviously a metronome, okay. a metronomic beep, 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 beep. Yep. Uh, you can listen. There's, you know, cadence to, uh, music. So up to X amount of beats per minute, 180 beats per minute music people can listen to. I, and the science always uses metronomes. So if you look at the scientific studies with this, they use metronomes for runners clinically. So in the clinic setting, in the real world setting, I've, uh, ever since this has been a thing in, in, in clinical practice, I've always uh, in, informed runners or asked runners to count their steps manually. So to go for a run, look at your watch, look at a minute coming around and on one leg, so say your right leg count one, two, three, four, and see how many steps you get. And somewhere towards 90 is great. So if you're in the 80s, probably doing okay. If you're in the 70s, almost without doubt, you're going to have your, your shin not vertical at the point right. of impact. So that's a simple correction technique for correcting that. And they count, we can count one minute, so every five minutes to run in. You can't count every minute, nor do you need to count every minute. And do that for a period of weeks. And if you have your, your, your data on your Garmin, like your cadence, yep. you probably see that naturally that starts to increase a little. I guess second to that, would you, would you recommend people like genuinely stripping things right back? So say you do have someone that's doing uh, multiple runs per week and I don't know, just, just for an example, say someone's doing a 10K session, they're doing, say, whatever, four-minute four 30Ks. They're, they're having a crack or whatever, they're doing four-minute 30Ks, but they are consciously aware of the fact that, they, that something does need to change to increase their efficiency. Would you recommend bringing it back and, and dropping the distance back down and bringing the pace right down and to retrain? Because I think, you know, going through that myself at one point in time, I found it quite difficult to go from even knowing that I could make my running a lot more efficient to then going back to almost feeling like, oh, fuck, this is way too slow. I feel like I'm not really having a crack, even though I knew I kind of had to do it to retrain. Because as soon as I sped up, I went back to old habits. As soon as you sped up, you went back to, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It, this is where it's, uh, it's, it's uh, such an interesting science. So in, in very simple terms, Danny, let's, we don't intervene unless there's a need. So okay. if you came in, Danny, and I put you on a treadmill and you wanted me to assess you, Mm-hmm. And nothing in your running history, your you know chronology of is there that's uh, too significant. There's no running related injuries or anything bothering you at the moment. Uh, unless there's a good reason, we wouldn't intervene. We wouldn't mm-hmm. even talk about it, right? Um, because your body's doing well. It's at the mo- at that point in time, the workload's not exceeding your tissue capacity, or you'd be injured. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to remember when we change something, when we change someone's cadence. Uh, forces, demands, loads on the body, they don't just disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, they shift. So shift. if you increase cadence, you'll shift it um, you know, from the knee to, say, further down the chain. Yep. So um, we've got to be very, very careful with these things. And at an elite level, uh, you're already looking at people that are adapted to their best movement patterns. So getting in and making biomechanical changes is a very scary place to be. So 
I know not everyone's an elite athlete, but that's an example. We don't intervene unless we have to. So no, there's no need to strip it right back yep. and go, right, I'm now going to learn to run 1K a game with good technique. Mm-hmm. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. No, nice. So, in, in regards to, um, let's say breaking it down into two kind of, I guess, segments. So you've got your your areas of strength training or the muscle groups that that probably require the most attention, and then also in terms of mobility. What like how long should people be spending, or, or like roughly um, how much people, how much work should people be doing on their mobility, say through the ankles and hips and whatnot, um, on a weekly basis, and then. Second part of that question is what are the areas, just for, for those listening that may have no idea, what are the areas in the lower body that um, are, I guess, most important in terms of building strength for the lower body to, to be able to run efficiently? Like the yeah, muscle it's, groups. It's, a, it's such a great question and something that I think many people do wonder about. I'll try and simplify uh, yeah. things as best as we can so people hopefully get a few takeaways. Um, the whole, so really what we're sort of discussing, I guess, Danny, is mobility versus strength. How do you ration that out, yeah? Yep. The, the mobility, let's talk about mobility first. It, it gets a lot of airtime and there's a lot of uh, perceptions that to run, you need to have great mobility here. You need to have you know, all this, this flexibility, if you like. The irony is when you look at the elite performers, the elite marathoners, distance runners, sprinters, they're often some of the, particularly in the distance world, tightest people muscularly. You'll see their hamstring straight leg raise is often not great. Uh, I had the pleasure of looking at, uh, personally assessing uh, a gentleman, uh, Bernard Legat, post the Gold Coast Marathon. Bernard Legat's the second fastest uh, a miler and 15, sorry, second fastest 1500 meter runner in history. Uh, five it's times insane. US Olympian at the age of 40. And he was up for the Gold Coast or out for the Gold Coast Marathon, uh, I'll say 2018, might have been 19. And he came in after the marathon for a bit of, bit of a, a look for some kneecap pain he had. And at university, uh, I was taught that we needed 10 centimetres of needle wall range, even at the Australian Institute of Sport when I went through as a student. This was sort of the shared sentiment that everyone needs to have 10 centimetres of needle wall, which is a measure of ankle bend. Mm-hmm. And uh, Legat had zero centimetres. And I'd long held this suspicion that um, you don't need 10 centimetres to run well. Um, what you do need is, is symmetry. So we do want to be symmetrical. So if yeah. you're looking at someone's ankle mobility, right, well, Danny, actually the last gentleman I just had in before we jumped in to record is a surfer who had a fairly decent injury 15 years ago on a quad bike. He got his foot caught underneath him and he kept going forwards and has done right. some decent damage. And his ankle mobility is like five to six centimeters different. He's a surfer trying to surf Mm -hmm. at a high level. So that asymmetry is the issue. So when it comes to flexibility or mobility, we look for asymmetries. Um, We do want good hip mobility as runners, 
But generally, if people can put their efforts into strength and conditioning, that is where they're going to get the biggest bang for their buck, both in effort and time investment. Interesting. And when you say put the effort into strength and conditioning, what are like, are you putting a big emphasis on calf work, hamstring work, glute, like, or is it just pretty well balanced across the, across the board? Oh, such brilliant. Denny, uh, you said it, the emphasis has to be on every muscle in the running kinetic chain and let's not overcomplicate it. What do we need? We need hips, glutes, uh, we need hamstrings, we need quads and we need the calf musculature, not forgetting that the calf's made up of, as you know, Denny, the, the gastroc or the, the almonds, the sexy almonds on top, and then yep. the deep set of layers. But what's interesting, if we look at the percentage of propulsion per muscle group for the running mechanics, uh, 50%, half of our running propulsion actually comes from below the knee. So our plantar right. flexors, our yep. calf muscles. So if we've got runners of any level trying to run at their best or trying to minimize the likelihood of injury uh, that aren't partaking in some level of below the knee strength and conditioning, whether that's just good old standing calf raises or preferably some seated calf raises as well. Then they're leaving speed on the table um, and they're not helping themselves. And then obviously we, we want to work on everything else as well. And we, we use benchmarks in practice. So we know that based off someone's body weight, what they should be able to do is single leg for each of these exercises to meet okay. the demands of running. That's super interesting. So, Something I was thinking about prior to um, our chat today, because um, I, I wanted to bring up the calf stuff. Um, it's funny; it actually really kind of popped into my mind because of our, our good friend uh, Nick Nick Davidson, who, who tends to have um, issues with his calves. He's, I was telling him he's getting old, but um, in terms of rep ranges and loads, like, is there a preference in terms of um, putting more emphasis towards a heavier load with a lower rep range or, or particularly for like an endurance athlete, should they be sticking more towards kind of what they're going to be doing in their running sessions where it's a lighter load with more endurance and higher rep ranges or is it similar to most other muscle group, muscle groups where you want to keep a good balance between your heavier, higher intensity and lower volume and, and higher volume and lower loads? Yeah, really insightful uh, question. If we, for runners, so it comes back to, you know, these hands. And if you're listening, you can't see the hands, but just imagine you've got your left hand is your, the amount of running you're doing or your workload and your yep. right hand is your tissue characteristics, your soft tissue strength. Uh, the workload is going to typically go up over time. People want to go further, faster, longer. Uh, and if that workload exceeds the ability of the muscles, that's when things can start to get flared up and sore. Now, what matters in these muscles is that we've got three things ticked off, A, B, and C. A, good endurance capabilities, because distance running is an endurance game, as you just said, Danny. So runners need to be able to you know, do X amount you know, of reps with the heaviest weight they can to build that endurance. B is we need good peak force uh, production from each of these muscle groups. So as an example, from the soleus, which really is the powerhouse of our running body, that deep part of the calf. I like to see runners of any level be able to do between one and one and a half times their body weight, uh, as four by eight reps as a, as a guideline. So that's that lower rep, higher weight type of work. A sing, single leg, are we talking here or double? Sing, single. Single leg, single leg. Yeah. Because running is a single leg yeah. sport. So we've yeah, got to yeah. make sure we're working single leg. 
we can do doubles for, for endurance. So single standing calf raises, I might say to someone, try and get four lots to 15 or 20 at your body weight for single standing. Mm. Sorry, sorry for, for double leg standing. Um, and uh, as an example, and the, the C, the, the third characteristic we need from the tissues to meet the demands of running is good reactive strength characteristics. So that's plyometrics uh, okay. type stuff. So yep. Hopping and you know doing different things like that. Being able to hop on one leg for thirty seconds continuously, mm. as an example. You mentioned before about the seated position for the calf raises, um, like the lower part of the of the the calf. There is that. Is there? A, do you usually put more of an emphasis on um, like if you were working with someone to try and build up their calf strength? Is there a certain range that you like to put more work or more time into compared to others, or is it pretty like keep it uh, relatively balanced? Range wise, yeah, you want people to go through the available range that they have, remembering that some people have stiffer ankles than others and yeah, all okay. these yeah. injury injury histories, ankle sprains, fractures, etc. So that we're always just trying to get people to get the most out of the range available that they've got. So a cue that I um, often use is hunting high heels, hunt high heels, get after that heel lift, make every rep count. Mm. That's yeah, man, shit, making me feel like I need to put a lot more time into my fucking calf work now. <laughs> um, <laughs> mate, a question that um, when I, I chucked up on social media the other day that we um, that we we're going to have a chat and something that come up quite a, quite a lot, and this is something that um, I get asked by clients a lot as well is how much of a, a, a significant difference is there in running on a treadmill compared to running um, on a on a surface like running outdoors in terms of the actual uh, biomechanics and the muscles being used and how is it relative to, to running outside if you're spending a shitload of time on the treadmill but you're trying to improve your running outdoors? So to answer the second part there, it, it doesn't matter too much if you are wanting to run outdoors in your local 10K event or half marathon or marathon and you're training on a treadmill. That's, that's fine. Uh, we do need to be mindful of changes in our you know training pattern so if we're always running outside you know wherever we live in in the world and all of a sudden we're inside covid lockdowns or whatever on the treadmill then that that change can uh create different you know environments where you might start to see an achilles tendinopathy for example so an achilles issue so there's a uh I'm trying to remember the science, but circa 25% increase in the Achilles tendon demands on a treadmill compared to running on the road. So right. we tend to shift our weight. We tend to shift our weight forwards when we run on the treadmill mm-hmm. um, and increase demands at the hip extensors, the glutes as well. So um, the glute max, I should say. So I'll there are a few differences. Sorry, sorry to cut you off there. I've always heard, or not always, I've, I've heard a few times early on that when running on a treadmill to simulate running um, on an out, like an outdoor surface or a track or whatever, whatever like yeah, wherever you run, um, yep. is is the is it just a myth that you should bring the the treadmill up to a one or two percent incline to to make it similar, or is that am I just made that up, or have I heard some absolute garbage there? No, that's not garbage. Uh, that's got to do with uh, uh, wind resistance. Uh, so if you run in indoors, you don't have any. So ah. if you run in stationary, that is. Yeah, so yeah. that's got to do with, with meeting the there's a whole science on this and it's yeah. not my area of expertise, but it's <laughs> bi- biomechanical uh, engineering analysis where 
it's sort of sort of infiltrated through to common day knowledge that you know put it to one percent so so there is some merit in that but it's not it's about wind resistance right okay beauty I, uh, I, I spend a fair bit of time with my clients um, before we do a strength and conditioning and, and any, even with any of my online clients, I always try and provide some form of, uh, I guess, dynamic warm-up, which would usually include some, some short amount of time doing some mobility, a bit of act- activation work um, before, before they do their session. So by the time they get to their first lift, their muscles are primed and central nervous system is primed and ready to go. Is there an optimal warm up before you go for a run you know someone's just been sitting on a couch and gets up and decides to go for a run is there any key things that that people should be doing before they um set off on their run yes and no uh it's always there's an individual preference some people like to do some routine uh the longer i've been doing this profession denny the more you realize things are more gray than black and white. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, and a motto I like to operate by is if it's not doing anyone any harm and they like doing something, then who are we to stop them? Right. So where does that fit in, in terms of answering this question? Uh, we know in common knowledge that stretching doesn't reduce injury risk, strength and conditioning sure has some good evidence base behind it. So for example, I was in Ethiopia just before COVID hit, with a New Zealand marathon and was getting ready for what should have been the 2020 Olympics at that point. And I watched firsthand the most intricate preparation to go and do a running session you've ever seen. It was long. It was fancy. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, got some video documentation, which was a bit of fun. And, and that's what works. If you're a professional runner, you, you need that. You need your brain ready to go and everything else. Recreational runners often say, don't worry if, all your warm-up consists of is putting your shoes on, walking out the door and getting halfway up the street before you fall into a light jog. That's okay as well. Yep. So the long answer is whatever tickles people's uh, fancy, there is, we all feel better though when we're primed up, don't we? If we do a few, you know, priming type moves, whether they're little jumps or whatever routine, for example, you might prescribe, uh, Denny, for, for your crew, um, wall push calf raises whatever something i think to condition the brain that you're about to undergo the demands of running i think is is nice but it's not an absolute necessity for people at time poor on that i guess on that kind of same same topic there in terms of say myofascial release or something like just as basic as like some foam rolling or you know massage guns are quite popular at the moment and things like that some form of smr like uh how often should, should people be doing it? Like we've, you touched on earlier, obviously the IT band um, is something that typically gets quite tight in runners and things like that. And obviously the calves and whatnot, if they're doing a fair bit of volume, like is that something that you prescribe um, your clientele or, or anyone that kind of follows your stuff to be spending a decent amount of time on a foam roller uh, post-session, pre-session? If so, like kind of how much should people be doing to try and at least maintain that muscle tissue and I guess not let the fascia get too tight? so that they're hopefully going to avoid that, that overuse or the tightness? It's, it's something in clinical practice. I mean, remembering that typically you're working with people recovering from an injury. Mm. Uh, I personally don't prescribe really at all these days. Um, it certainly has been well used over, over the years. Uh, and there was a time when any physiotherapist or therapist on the planet would have prescribed foam rolling for IT band syndrome. We now know that actually makes it worse because if you're symptomatic <laughs> with IT band syndrome, because it can compress right. the, uh, the, 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 the fat pad structure that's causing the pain. But um, 
what I tend to see is people don't have a lot of time typically available. So they want to try yeah. and get the best out of, out of the time they've got available. So I often try and reassure people that if they're just spending their time, strength and conditioning, home, gym, whichever, hopefully both, if they have the opportunity and the, and the access to, to a gym environment, then they're going to get the best return for their time and investment. So if people strengthen things and didn't get to any foam rolling, I'm not concerned, but if they like to foam roll and it makes them feel good, um, then they can absolutely go to town as long as it's not jeopardizing the time they have available for the absolute requirements of strength and conditioning. Right. Okay. No, it's fair. It seems like, um, you know, the, the more we keep chatting and uh, you've already kind of said this already, but it, and it's the same with strength training as well and warming up and cooling down and, and rep range and all that type of shit as well. It's like, it is very case by case. And, and, and particularly for your kind of average trainer, someone that's not, their profession is not an athlete. Like it, it, as you said, time, time is often the, the biggest case for people to even get to the gym or go for a run, let alone throwing in kind of big warm up routines and fucking foam rolling for 30 minutes afterwards and all that type of shit. So it's super interesting. What's, um, when, when it comes to say like body composition, um, you know, this is something that, that I would tell any of my clients that if, if someone's just trying to, to look good and the main priority is to, to build or retain lean muscle tissue and they're trying to lose a bit of body fat, I would always prescribe strength training first and then the cardio, whether it's running or whatever, whatever they want to do for their conditioning would come second, whether it's directly after or completely separate. In your, um, your, your experience in the industry, when it comes to the strength and running, when they're both combined, which, which comes first for you? If they're both being done in the same day, and this is something I got asked is just how people can kind of uh, migrate the two together if they're doing both. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a great consideration. Keeping it simple, if people are training for a running event, uh, running should take priority. Uh, but I like to think of strength and conditioning as uh, the tax that we all have to pay. Yep. And particularly post 30 years of age, the world doesn't stop at 30. Gosh, we both just saw Kelly Slater win pipe masters Insane. just before, before 50 years of age yesterday. We know Tom Brady just retired and on it goes. Uh, Bernard Legat, the runner I mentioned earlier, five times US Olympian, qualified Le for that team at 40 years of age. LeBron you know? so, probably got some of the best stats he's had in his career. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. So, but post 30, we do see some down regulation of tissue characteristics in terms of strength. So, uh, so, so people really absolutely need to keep going with their strength and conditioning. But, uh, if on a given day you had to have the choice of doing gym based conditioning work before running or the other way around, I'd say go for your run first and then get in the gym, but it's not always that neat and clean, but there's science to support that as well. One thing that we need to keep in mind for body composition, Danny, in, in people that are doing some running for, for uh, distance running for, for fitness is people often worry about bulking up uh, if they've got serious running goals. You hear it as a pushback to the strength and conditioning all the time, but I'll bulk up. And it's a generalization, but often it's a female athlete that's worried about bulking up mm -hmm. with their running. But there's a thing called scientific effect, the interference effect which basically means at a cellular level, there's a cancelling out of any signals for real hypertrophy uh, when you're doing endurance training and S and C that's low reps, heavy weight. So you, you, you don't see runners typically bulking up um, if they're doing a lot of distance running. So 
So oh, yeah, so they. I always say, if it was that easy, I'd be fucking huge. <laughs> exactly. I wish it was that easy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's often a bit of a pushback to someone that's like, I don't want to be in the gym. I don't want to get big if they're focused on their running. Yeah, yeah. But they're obviously um, very appreciative that you jumped on here with me today. You've obviously got your own show as well, physical performance show. Um, is that something that, that you're enjoying doing? Obviously, you have um, some incredible content on there and great conversations. Um, what are, I guess, some of the, the key takeaways you've, you've been able to take from, from running the show and, and some of the people you've been able to meet through there? Yeah, thanks, Danny. Like you said at the top of this episode or recording, uh, you learn when you conduct an interview. Uh, I'm the same. I recognize that I love learning. And if there was nothing else that came from putting these together, then you learn something that mm. you can then help others with. It's such a rewarding experience. So uh, we have episode types called expert editions. And I love doing all the recordings, but I really love the expert editions where I've got to prep up and get ready to ask someone certain questions about certain area of uh, sports medicine and, and endurance and, uh, and learn from them. So there's, a theme, there's many themes that sort of often recur over what's now been six years of recording and that's consistency in workload, you know, is great for obviously mm-hmm. performance, reducing injury risk. And then the other really topical thing, and I guess you mentioned it with body composition, is this idea of fueling and fueling for the work required. So... Like I grew up in the nineties as an aspiring triathlete and the whole thinking was leaner is better. You know, you've got to have emancipated yeah. ribs and be lean to, yeah. to, you know, get anywhere in this sport. Uh, fortunately, the, the world's moved on. Science has improved. Uh, awareness in the field's improved. And we now know that if an athlete's under fueled, it is a handbrake on their performance because yeah. their hormones can't adapt to the training. And second to that, there's unfortunately some real legacy health issues, uh, low bone density, uh, fertility concerns, the list goes on. So, so that's a huge area that we spend a fair bit of time on the physical performance show delving into, particularly with respect to endurance athletes. I love that, mate. That was a, that was a really good, really good point to, to wrap it up on. I mean, I want to be super respectful of your time. I know you're a busy man. So, mate, I appreciate your time today. I, I could sit here and, and chat with you all day. I'm actually going to be up in, uh, up in Queensland in a, in a few weeks. So I'll have to hit you up and, and see if you've got any time. We'll, we'll um, catch up. Um, but, mate, thanks, thanks a lot for your time. I really do appreciate it. Danny, thanks for the invitation and keep up the great work, mate. You're making a difference. Really appreciate it, mate. And for everyone who's tuned in, we uh, we really do appreciate it as well. If you take a screenshot of today's episode, post it up on Instagram story, tag myself, tag Brad. We'd love to hear your feedback and uh, hopefully we can get him back on sometime in the near future. Thanks again, mate. Thanks, Danny.